Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Mad Mamluks. I'm Mahin and I'm here with my co-hosts, Sheikh Amir Saeed and Sim. Today we've got a very special friend on the show, Daniel Hakikaju. Daniel is the director at Yakin Institute. He has a bachelor's degree in physics from Harvard University with a minor in philosophy. And he also has a master's in philosophy from Tufts University. How's it going? First of all, Jazakallah for coming on. Yeah, welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, Daniel, uh, as we uh, get into the show, being a director at Yakin is, is the institute founded by Sheikh Omar Suleiman. And for Sheikh Omar to entrust somebody with that kind of role, you know, as he starts his initiative, you know, a lot of people like know about you through a lot of your work online via Muslim Matters or Facebook posts, etc. But it, it sounds to me Sheikh Omar is a very intuitive guy. There's a lot, probably a lot more than meets the eye with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background for those of you, for those of us, are, and our listeners who who may not be aware of who you are exactly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. Um, my parents are actually from Iran, both of them. Um, and, uh, I grew up, you know, just a normal, um, kid growing up in Houston and starting about high school age, I started rediscovering, um, my identity as a Muslim, um, started becoming more observant, started studying more about the Deen, alhamdulillah. So, um, that was kind of my growth growing up, um, and identifying as a Muslim, even though I was born Muslim, and um, I guess I would describe my parents as more secular, um, but they're they're still Muslim, alhamdulillah. Uh, so yeah, I um, uh, went to Harvard University in Boston, alhamdulillah, for my undergrad. Studied physics. I was always interested in philosophy, and I had this desire as I became more and more um, in touch and, and through study of Islam this desire to defend Islam and to really um, look at some of the attacks on Islam from different angles and from different ideologies um, that want to portray Islam as backwards and irrational and, and, and all of these stereotypes. Um, so yeah, that's that motivated me amongst other things to want to study philosophy more closely. And so I, I did a minor in philosophy from Harvard and I want to uh, pursue academia. Um, so I went into the master's degree uh, in philosophy as well. And then through a variety of circumstances, um, uh, I didn't go on to do the PhD. Um, and I decided to put it off um, for family reasons, wanting to um, start a family with my wife. I, I married uh, my wife right after undergrad. Uh, she was also a Harvard student. So we actually uh, met at Harvard, and that's a funny story that we can talk about at some point. But um, we uh, decided to start a family, so I put off the further graduate studies and went into the professional world, uh, work with different digital companies, software companies. And while I, was, while I had that day job, I felt like there were a lot of issues um, that I could contribute thoughts on, um, given my philosophical background and the studies that I had done. And I felt it was kind of a waste to have done those studies and then be working in corporate America. So I decided to blog just independently. I started something. Um, this is a simple site, uh, islamandevolution.com. Wanted to, I saw that a lot of Muslims had questions and doubts about 
evolutionary theory, and that's something that I studied a lot um, in my master's degree. Um, I specialized in the philosophy of science. So I just want to contribute some simple thoughts uh, on that blog, and eventually um, Muslim Matters uh, noticed some of that material and thought, hey, well, why don't you join us and come on as a columnist? And I thought that was a great opportunity. Um, I had you know, always read Muslim Matters and knew that there was a lot of great um, people involved, mashallah. So I started blogging with them uh, with a column called The Muslim Skeptic. And the idea behind that name, Muslim Skeptic, was in the sense that I thought there are all these different ideologies and philosophies that Muslims often just assume and take for granted. And whereas instead of taking those philosophies for granted, we should be skeptical about them. And, and usually we think of skepticism as being anti-religion. Usually skeptics are secular or they're atheists. Um, but I want to turn the tables on that and kind of turn that on its head. Why can't Muslims be skeptical? Why don't we just take Islam for granted? Why don't we take our, not take it for granted in the sense that we don't, uh, we don't have rational confidence and conviction in our beliefs, but why don't we start with that conviction and turn the tables and start asking pointed questions and critiquing these other ideologies that we often just assume. So that was my um, start with Muslim Matters, and I also started a Facebook page um, because I wanted to get into the habit of writing and, and commenting on issues related to philosophy and science, uh, and kind of, you know, ha get into this practice of, of regularly writing, because if you don't, if you don't use it, you lose it. Uh, writing is, a, is skilled in that way. Um, so I thought that I could get better at my writing if I just had regular Facebook posts and forced myself to sit down at the computer for 15, 30 minutes and, and wrote something, um, however small. But yeah, so I've been doing that for about almost two years. Um, this January will be two-year two mark. And the reaction has been really positive. Um, I think people seem to think that some of these topics I write about are um, needed. Like we need to have this conversation about things like secularism, liberalism, atheism, feminism, uh, and so on and so forth. So I'm, I've been really happy, alhamdulillah, with the reaction from the Muslim community, and I think that, you know, it, it's been positive overall. Yeah, you know, Sim has had a man crush on you for like over a year, and I think <laughs> Sheikh Amr and myself, we've we learned about you in the last few months, and, we, you know, we definitely find a lot of your work interesting. I definitely want to get into the meat of, those, of these issues um, here, but you can't just drop a teaser and then not finish it off and, like, leave us <laughs> hanging. What's the story between yeah. you meeting your wife at Harvard? Let's, let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, so I was a sophomore, um, and she came into the freshman class. And, you know, we were involved with MSA, and from just that involvement with MSA, I could see that she had a lot of the same interests in terms of studying Islam and being serious about certain things. Um, and so you know, through that and, and seeing like just her personality, I thought that, well, maybe this is something to pursue and be serious about and think about marriage. And so that's, so I literally approached her and said, you know, 
and it was cold. Like we didn't have like a warm relationship or we're like joking around with each other or anything like that. Alhamdulillah. But it was just kind of out of the blue. It was like, well, you know, let's talk about marriage. And I mean, it was the most awkward conversation yeah, ever. Awesome. You didn't <laughs> say, you, you, you didn't have that conversation. Give me the number to your Wally. You didn't say that to her at all? <laughs> <laughs> That it was, wasn't that, that awkward, right? Conversation. Yeah, that was going to be the end of it. But <laughs> she basically was like, and she, may, uh, you know, afterwards talking about it, she said that I was deliberately trying to make it as hard as possible for you <laughs> to <laughs> test your stuff and see if you're really a man about it. Wow. So sure. I, you know, I was, you know, leading up to, or, or that's why I proposed. I was like, well, we can have a con I know that we don't know each other very well, but you know, we can have that conversation in context of our families and you know, I can visit your dad and and we can talk about these things and and, and talk with each other in a chaperone setting. But she wasn't having any of it. Uh, <laughs> so she basically rejected me right there. Uh -oh. Um in so many words. So I mean, that was that, but we were I mean, I guess she had a point like we were very young. I was just a sophomore. She was a freshman. She didn't know what she wanted to study or what she wanted to do with her life. And so what happened was later when I was um, in my senior year, I decided to, you know, nothing had changed. Like we were, I still felt like there was potential there. And so I reopened this and I was like, look, and that time I was more prepared, you know, <laughs> Uh, to have that conversation so it's a lot less awkward like I literally uh, memorized the speech uh, <laughs> to you know give her a pitch basically yeah? yeah I gave her a pitch that look this is why we need to we need to talk about this and made had an effect you know sorry go ahead no, no, I, I thought I thought that only happens in the movies where they memorize yeah. the pitch and then they pitch it and it comes out wrong <laughs> but anyway yeah yeah, yeah exactly Sorry. And I'm kind of an awkward person in general, so <laughs> I had to, you know, make sure to go prepared. So then, yeah, then sh uh, she agreed um, that we can maybe pursue this. So I went and visited her family in New Jersey. And, yeah, and then things went from there. So alhamdulillah, it was an interesting experience. So sure, got rejected. Yeah. But then, you know, struck back, if you can... So, so all you single guys out there that are getting rejected by your number one, persistence is key, but don't be a stalker. <laughs> That's the lesson of the day from the Mad Mum Lukes and Daniel. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a, now uh, to segue back into it, you know, Harvard, people who study at Harvard, um, especially philosophy and stuff, these kind of like what we call the liberal arts education. There's a lot of Muslims that study that stuff with a well-meaning intention, but then they get sidetracked and they come out with a completely twisted view of what Islam is about. What, what's your background as far as Orthodox Islam goes? Because you mentioned you grew up in a kind of a more secular-leaning Muslim family. So did you already have a foundation before you start, started at Harvard? Or like talk to us a little bit about that and how you stay grounded in, in, in the tradition while study, studying certain concepts that from your professors who may have a very, I would say, uh, antagonistic view of Islam? Yeah, that's a great question. I did have a little bit of a background. Um, as I mentioned, I became a little bit, uh, I became more observant in high school. And that was through the influence of some really amazing brothers um, that Allah just put in my path. Um, 
And they were really committed. Um, a couple of them were Hafiz of the Quran, mashallah. And um, they didn't, and, and what was amazing is that they didn't really push anything on me. It was mo- more like, you know, attending uh, Friday prayer at the high school, which was a really great experience and opportunity um, through the high school MSA. And so just through their influence, like I slowly became a little bit more conscious of, look, this tradition, like our Islam is very deep and it requires appreciation uh, for you to actually go and study it and learn uh, and grow and and get closer to Allah. And the other factor was that um, there was this thing called Muslim Interscholastic Tournament, uh, missed and I don't know if you've heard about it, yeah, but yeah. It's, it's it's been pretty popular. But I was a sophomore when the first ever missed happened. Uh, sophomore or junior in, in high school, and it happened in Houston, Texas, at the University of Houston campus. So I participated in that, and, and there were a lot of inspiring speakers um, and inspiring uh, college students who were living, you know, as Muslim, they were really imbibing and embodying the faith um, in that context. And so just seeing that, that was very inspiring, um, and it motivated me to want to study more and to learn more and to, and to become better. So then that was the before college. When I went to college, again, I was blessed. Alhamdulillah, we had an amazing chaplain uh, there, um, and his name is Sheikh Taha Abdul Basir. Um, and he is actually currently in New York. Um, that's someone that, you know, he, he's not as well known um, in uh, nationally, but in New York and in Boston, mashallah, he has, a, he has a really big influence. And I would definitely recommend, um, you know, and anyone listening to this to go seek him out. But I studied with him um, uh, some of the basics of Islamic sciences, and he also, again, embodied this this very confident um, uh, attachment to the deen and, and the sunnah, and that was inspiring just like to be around him and to see him speak, and, and to, you know, and he's also a Harvard graduate, so he had graduated in the 90s and was doing a PhD at Harvard and also served as the chaplain part-time. So, mashallah, um, you know, he, he was very qualified and learned a lot from him and just uh, benefited so much from his character and, and his, you know, just his stature and, and uh, in the community, mashallah. So um, that was very beneficial for me. And I also got the opportunity in Boston. There's a lot of college communities they have regular events with with great speakers and and scholars who come and teach um, not just like one seminar but extended courses uh, on different subjects in the Islamic sciences so that also helped keep me grounded Um, and and the thing is when you have that kind of uh, the problem that a lot of people face when they go to college a lot of Muslims face is that they have a shallow understanding of the Islamic sciences and, and and the tradition but they're gaining knowledge and uh, an appreciation for the secular sciences and, and the Western tradition. And so when you have that imbalance where you have so much appreciation for one thing, but you have a very shallow understanding of the other, then it's natural to kind of look down on the Islamic sciences and to think that there's not much to it. And yeah. the only reason that someone would follow that stuff is because they're ignorant or they're uneducated or backwards. Yeah, and it can but come if you off keep as, those things, 
Sorry, go ahead. No, sorry. Yeah, you know, I'm saying I've met many individuals. You know, and that situation just seems uh, the Islamic sciences get more and more pushed away, and it seems too primitive to them eventually. Once after a certain time period, and then for some individuals, it's unfortunate. It's almost like you know, there's no point of return, and um, you know, they may you know take up more of the Orientalist mindset. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask you is, and as far as Islamic sciences are concerned, eventually there's something that strikes a chord from all the different sciences when you're studying in general, uh, you know, studying Islamic sciences on a general basis. But what eventually, if any, uh, did you know at a point that you wanted to specialize in something in the Islamic sciences? Which Yeah, so I, I haven't specialized in anything. Um, so I haven't pursued to the extent that I should those studies. So I'm still in the process of that. Are you I'm leaning towards something? Do you, do you feel like you're leaning towards something right now? Um, no, I haven't narrowed anything down. I mean, I think everything, anything would be beneficial for me at this point. Um, Daniel, so yeah, I'm definitely just a student. You, you talked about something uh, very profound in terms of uh, conviction. And I feel like a lot of your writings uh, are kind of leading or pointing towards that, that direction. Now, do you think in this modern era that we live in, uh, do you think more young Muslims need to have a more critical self-analysis of why they believe in what they believe in and, and doing this uh, um, building towards a, a 100% bulletproof conviction in their belief so that no attack from any type of uh, movement or whether it's the neo-atheist movement or the liberal movement or or the alt-right, whatever movement is out there, are, should, should more young Muslims be able to do this self-analysis or or should this be more uh, uh, for, through formal education? Should, should Muslim schools, private schools, and Sunday schools be adapting uh, adopting this into their curriculum, uh, a, a, a critical belief uh uh, self-analysis oh, yeah. type of thing where hey this is why we believe in what we believe and then they kind of this, this okay so I'll, let me show you give you an example of what i do with my kids i i kind of talk to them about um different attacks that come from atheists uh regarding the quran so i'll say like oh so you believe in a, a prophet that you know Put all bunch of animals on a on a big ark, and you know he floated away in 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 a big ocean, and then he started civilization again. Come on, do you really believe that, or do you actually believe in a, a pro, in a, a man who lived inside a whale, and then he ended up surviving that, and and kind of put it along that tone, you know that the, that mocking tone that Muslims or anyone of faith actually uh, believe in in these scriptures basically you're playing bill maher with them yeah yeah so so i kind of do that with them in order to get them really upset and um try to get come back with some kind of answer and a, a coherent logical response or a rational response you know yeah i think that's uh crucial to be able to have those kinds of conversations and, and make it you know put it in the tone of the you know these enemies and attackers of islam i think that that's really crucial as far as education goes i think islamic schools um should develop curricula um that addresses the big questions that often come up as soon as kids go to college and that's something that yakin is actually working on um we we're trying to develop uh, material that 
Islamic schools uh, around the world can use and, and take advantage of. So I think that there needs to be, on, on the institutional level, there needs to be more resources. There needs to be more resources on these common questions. Like we need to have, you know, at the very least talking points, right? Because the questions aren't new uh, and, and they're not kind of, um, they're being discussed in the open. So these were, why these are we were, not prepared, right? These were questions that were prevalent in the 70s and the 60s with the, the communists uh, coming to power all over the world. And they were being posed to Muslims uh, back then. And I think a lot of the Islamic movements could try to tackle it back then. But now we're just seeing a regurgitation of all those attacks in a more modern flavor, you know, mm. with um, guys like uh, from the alt-right popular movement, uh, popular people like Milo and, you know, whatnot, trying to... Uh, say this right. uh, say the same message but in a more funny way or a more clever way you know and i think uh if we can formulate or build some some teachers in in our institutions who are able to have these discussions with with uh with students in a more closed setting and and be able to because this 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 type of a setting needs to be uh more private i think in terms of uh commitment because you you could have people end up having doubts when you do critical yeah. self analysis of you right. know, why you believe in a creator and, and you go through that process. Some people may end up going down a, a dark path that yeah, because you have to dig really deep for yeah, this. You have to yeah. dig deep and get really cerebral. Well, so for some people it doesn't require that, but other people, I mean, human beings are very dynamic creatures, right? So some people they they can chase a rabbit down the hole uh, based on a certain thought process they have and it can make them an atheist. And when yeah. they had a, they were perfectly fine Muslim who was, uh, you know, uh, perfectly happy seeing the miracles around him in, um, whatever he found, whether it was nature or whatnot. And he saw that Allah SWT existed based on that. But then, uh, that kind of discussion yeah, so- made him go, you know, down a dark path that, you couldn't escape out of. So these are the things that you you want to uh, be aware of when we're having these discussions, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. The thought process that a person has doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? So we're surrounded by secularism. And that those are kinds of thoughts and beliefs that people assume are informed by this mindset that there is no God, that the physical world is all that we have. And so that becomes the set assumption um, that everyone starts off with. And we have to address that by creating um, educational structures and institutions that don't, don't use that model and don't start off with that model. And that's part of the reason that I'm, I'm an advocate of homeschooling. Um, and I know that it's it's impractical for a lot of people, but there's actually a growing movement of um, not only Muslim, but a lot of Christian families who have realized that homeschooling is a better option than public schools, private schools, and even religious schools. Um, and, and it makes sense because if you look at the standard curriculum um, that a lot of schools uh, today in the past assume – it's coming from a certain kind of um, European philosophy, um, a secular mindset, and uh, what they understood as 
the the subjects that one needs to learn to become an enlightened individual and adult. I mean, that's all based on these secular enlightenment ideas. Um, so it's no wonder, it's, it's not a surprise that if we send our kids into such an environment, just purely on, I'm, I'm just talking about the subject matter, not even like the other crap that goes on in schools these days, but just the, purely the subject matter. If you put a kid through that, then is it any surprise that when they, after 13 years, 14 years graduate, they're more likely to be secular or they're more likely to question God's existence? So it's even it's in religious schools, the, the, the dilemmas yeah. in religious schools, too. You'll have individuals exactly because, because they, they take the same they take the same subject matter exactly. and just add like a class for Arabic or a class for Islamic theology. Like that's just that's just window dressing. It's not addressing the core problem. Yeah. And, that you know, that's that's uh, that's a dilemma because um, you have some Islamic study students. Uh, I'm sorry, Islamic school, full time school students that join the school at the age of kinder, kindergarten and they graduate 12th grade and they leave as an atheist you know um it's the, and how does that phenomenon happen you know a lot of it has to do with the philosophy of education um and, and there's one thing Absolutely. that i wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit you mentioned yaqeen um and as far as my question i had as far as yaqeen is concerned you guys closed me just moving yeah, towards yaqeen. Yeah. um you know yaqeen institute had claimed that it was a think tank for the muslims right um you know a think tank is also known as like a policy institute or research institute but how far uh, is how far is the research, um, and how far is it spreading? You know, is it just uh, advocacy on you know just for social policies and issues? Is it for political strategy? Is it for you know economics? Is it for technology and culture, or is it very specific uh, type of think tank? Because that's a question that I I had also. I don't know what you guys, but that's what I've been thinking about for a while. Very broad. Um, and if you look at our website, yaqeeninstitute.org, or our Facebook page, um, you can see that the research topics that are covered are, are very broad and diverse. And the people that also are involved are very diverse as well and are coming from different perspectives and backgrounds. What what unifies us is this um, this desire to address things that are affecting the confidence and conviction of Muslims in America and around the world. Um, so those kinds of questions and doubts, shubahat, are coming from different areas, uh, anything from philosophy, science, economics, um, even public policy. Like those are all our potential sources of doubt um, uh, for Muslims. So anything like that is what we want to address, and, and we have a very um, uh, proactive approach to that in, in that we did a study um, earlier in the year, and we published it a, a few weeks ago on the sources or the pathways to doubt in the American Muslim community. And what we did was we interviewed over 30 different imams, chaplains, and activists around the country, and we asked them you know, what are, what's causing Muslims to doubt in this day and age? What is really hurting the conviction of Muslims? And, you know, they gave us a lot of information on that and a lot of different perspectives. And we synthesized all, all of those interviews um, in, into a final, uh, not a final, but an initial study um, to kind of lay out the contours of research areas that we want to pursue in the future. And so that was just an initial study, we're planning other studies where we're actually going to go and talk to Muslims on the ground 
interview them to see, okay, what are your doubts? Um, what, or maybe even people who have left Islam, you know, what caused that? What made, what took you down this path? So it's a, it's a long-term project, but, um, you can, you can read the results of that on the website and we even yeah. produce a nice infographic that shows the different areas, um, of doubt. And that kind of is a good summary of, uh, or overview of what Yaqeen is concerned about addressing. Yaqeen, um, um, and it's, it's quite diverse. Sorry. Daniel, I called you Yaqeen, yeah. actually. <laughs> um, um, do you think this might be a little controversial, but I know you say it like it is, and that's why I love you. There you but go. Um, do you think it. that there is any blame to be put on certain types of schools or um, uh, Islamic understandings that may have taken Muslims away from more of an intellectual understanding of Islam. Um, the way, uh, the, the, the ability to have uh, a discussion towards an intellectual belief, like, uh, because right now it seems like, at least in America, it's a very spiritual, uh, heavy uh, Sufi-influenced belief. And uh, I love Sufism in, in, in many no, different forms, but not... <laughs> Now, not I, I don't I don't love Sufism in that in the <laughs> form lying. that 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 <laughs> keep going. Sorry, <laughs> the, the the problems of the Sufism I don't like is where you know it just becomes so spiritual where you don't end up having honest discussions with yourself uh, uh, regarding uh, the belief in the Creator and things like that. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I don't think it's something that is limited to just Sufism. I think it's uh, it's not just it Sufism. There, there's other there's, there's other schools <laughs> um, around the sure. around the world that have um, you know a, a very shallow understanding of I wouldn't say shallow, but uh, for the lack of a better term, they don't they're not able to discuss um, these type of concepts in a very uh, intellectual manner. I guess. I disagree. I think there are some um, uh, people who have that orientation, um, uh, you know, scholars who have that orientation that are do speak um, very profoundly on these questions. Um, you know, anyone from uh, Tim Winter, um, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad in the UK uh, is is the example that comes to mind. Uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, um, Dr. Shadi Al Masri. Uh, in New yeah. Jersey. Um, so these, uh, I mean, they consider themselves, um, you know, part of, part of that path, um, more than others, maybe, um, very explicitly. And if you look at what they've been talking about these issues for a very long time, I mean, just Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad by himself, uh, mashallah, and others, I mean, Dr. Nuh Keller, Sheikh Nuh Keller also, has been addressing these philosophical issues and from a very, um, you know, very on a very deep level. So I, again, like, I don't think it's, I, I try not to get into kind of yeah, um, yeah sectarianism, look. but it's, um, I think there are a lot of different things that contribute to uh, kind of, I don't want to say dumbing down of the discourse, but, I feel like I mean we we been... didn't just end up here uh, all of a sudden it had there was a slow regression over hundreds of years that you know we're we're trying to remember 
some of the the debates that happened uh, um you know several hundred years ago that that muslim scholars were able to discuss with the the best of the the greeks and uh, and whatnot you know so well we're we're trying to figure out how we got here and trying to figure out well how what 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 are the best things to do to rectify what are the best practices that we can find in undoing undoing some of the damage that's been done you know? yeah so i think that it's it we need to have this posture of of critique and skepticism when it comes to western ideology and western philosophy and that's what's been missing I, and i think it has to do with the fact that the muslim world was militarily dominated um, and that domination was not only physical, it was intellectual. Yeah. Um, and it, we're still reeling from that uh, over 100 years later. And I think that the way but, the, the Muslim world was colonialized and the Arabic language was kind of taken away from from a lot of the uh, the Muslim world itself, too. The, the ability to, to speak uh, the, the pure Arabic from the Quran, I think that intellectual... Uh, discourse was removed as well mm. yeah absolutely um it was a deliberate program and and that's why i try to talk about in some of my writings is that it's it's not a coincidence that um liberalism um which is the philosophy from which secularism arises no surprise that it conflicts so directly and and so pointedly with islam and there's this really fascinating academic book um, from Joseph Massad, who's an academic, um, who wrote this great book, Islam and Liberalism. And I endorse everything that is in the book, but he, his, the whole thesis of the book is that liberalism was defined in contradistinction to Islam. It was defined in a way to oppose Islam very directly. And that liberalism um, that came about from that is what we've inherited today. And so it's no surprise that there's all this conflict between a kind of liberal mindset um, that a lot of Muslims knowingly or unwittingly adopt and are, you know, the Sharia and Islam and Muslim society. So that's, you know, we need to address that and we need to critique liberalism and stop taking it for granted and stop viewing it as this, you know, great, uh, wonderful, achievement of western thought that now muslims need to uh, incorporate into their own beliefs that's the opposite of what we should be doing we should be critiquing it because it you know has all of these uh it has this big influence and this big impact on the muslim community and the muslim world right you know if i just took that little clip of what you just said though like somebody who's a non-muslim who's like an american citizen would be like well they're right that America's a liberal democracy or founded on the, the values of liberalism, it can't coexist with Islam. Like, are you, I, I assume you're not saying that necessarily, but what's, like, you know, that's, like, a lot of people could hear that and, and take that from it. Or maybe you are saying that there is no, necessarily, there is a conflict there that has to be addressed. Like, what, what exactly, in that context, um, as we deal with, like, people's fear of Muslims in America, due to like them thinking it's it's completely incompatible it's 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 a diametric opposite to what their values are you know what what would be your response to that well i think that there are a lot of things that i want to say to that um first of all this kind of critique of liberalism and secularism 
I'm not the only one who is raising this. Muslims aren't the only ones who are raising these issues. It, this is something that is well discussed in uh, Western academia. And when you look at different disciplines uh, like intellectual history and anthropology, they have really strong critiques of liberalism. They have really strong critiques of secularism. Um, but the public at large is just unaware of that. And so we kind of continue to operate by these, uh, co- you know, quote unquote, common sense categories like, oh, we're living in a democracy. Freedom and equality is what we need to be pursuing around the world. All of these concepts and categories and terms have been problematized and questioned and critiqued to death uh, in academia. But the public discourse at large is, just hasn't been hasn't caught up. And so part of what I try to do is to bring that information to people at large and basically say, look, the emperor doesn't have any clothes. Um, so that's the first thing I would say is that this is not necessarily just Muslims critiquing liberal democracy and secularism. The second thing I would say is that Muslims' ability to live in the West uh, and as Westerners, like American Muslims, um, has hasn't been due to, I would say, liberalism um, as a philosophy. Because when we look at Europe, and now we're increasingly seeing in the US, the more liberal society becomes, the more secular it becomes, the more antagonistic it becomes to Muslims and Islam. Mm. And we see this in France, we see this in Germany, we see this in, in the UK, even to an extent, where you'll have the people who are really pushing against, you know, the hijab, for example, or uh, halal food, zabiha food, meat, um, or what else? Circumcision, for example. Um, the people who are opposing it are the secular liberals in Europe. Um, and, and then in the U.S., we're seeing some of that as well when it comes to things like gay marriage and LGBT discourse. But the way that the reason that Muslims have been able to kind of live as Muslims in the U.S. is more, I think, due to Christianity and the fact that a lot of Muslim values and, and the Muslim conception of religion is is more in line and is kind of adjacent to Christianity and Christian theology and Christian views. So we've been able to live in this neighborly way because of that, because of the tradition, the Christian and Jewish tradition in this country. Yeah. We've been able to plug ourselves in the what Muslims have, like— Progressive Muslims, especially, or more liberal-leaning Muslims, they claim that liberalism, freedom of religion, these these values are what allow us to live comfortably um, in the West. But I would question that and critique that. Okay, so in the beginning of the show, we talked about you know how a lot, a lot of people are aware of you based upon you know your blog posts, you know social media presence, etc. And we were talking offline about how you know. You're the you're the kind of guy. There's always people out there. Everyone's got a different like uh, you know audience. People follow you. Um, so the people that do, they either love you or they hate you. And I'll give you an example of sometimes the irrationality you see. There's an article that I want to touch on a little later in the show that you had written uh, regarding uh, the positives of a Trump presidency for the Muslim community. Uh, I think it was right around election the day before, maybe or something around that time before the cabinet stuff and all that. And so I post the day after the election, I posted that in a WhatsApp group I was in. And this brother who's a who's a law student at an Ivy League school replied, yeah. 
you know, that dude, you know, he downplayed sexual misconduct or sexual abuse. And my point was like, okay, so what if he does? So what? That has nothing to do with this article here. You know, and like, what's your take on this? And I think it's like this whole like, you know, bandwagon jumping thing like, oh, I can't support this article that Daniel wrote because otherwise, you know, I'm going to get this other crowd of people hating me because they don't want to think rationally. And and you're someone who comes, you know, your content, you're very polite, but then it's very real, too. You know what I mean? And the language police... You know, those kind of people who are talking about safe spaces and stuff that they don't want to offend anybody. And people like you are like kind of coming off as like and challenging their whole like worldview or how they want to like, you know, interact with each how we want to how they want us to interact, which in a sense kind of does not allow us to really get points across because everything is so sugarcoated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I would. I would object to me the claim that I downplay sexual abuse and sexual violence. I think that's kind of a smear. Um Yeah, and you, you addressed or, that in a post people's... based upon a personal family situation that you that and so uh you 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 can mention that here if you want. If you don't want to not, not a big deal, but I was just giving an example like so what if you were it didn't you know it has no relevance to the Trump article. It's like it's yeah, a yeah, different content. Like mix and match issues. Um I mean, it, it should be irrelevant. I, I'm not, uh, I don't downplay sexual misconduct or sexual violence or abuse. It is a real problem and it's, um, something that we should address, but we, it should be addressed in the right way. As for people who, you know, the thing is that a lot of the things I'm saying are controversial. There are things that haven't been discussed openly in the Muslim community. And that's a problem because you have these issues that go unaddressed and then they do a lot of damage um, slowly over time. And we're seeing, uh, I, I know I'm not the only one as a Muslim who is seeing a lot of friends, like Muslim friends, Muslim family who are from Islam. Some of them are leaving Islam. Like everyone knows people like that. Um, and it seems like it's not getting better. It's getting worse every year. And so what is causing that? What is the reason for this? And we have to do a lot of soul searching. We have to do a lot of reflecting. And I think part of it is that there is these issues that for whatever reason, um, whether it's feminism, liberalism, secularism, we, we haven't really addressed for the sake of being politically correct. Um, and we've kind of pushed things under the rug or we've given a lot of slogans um, about these things like, oh, yeah, Islam is all about freedom and equality or Islam is all about women's rights. Like these are just slogans, but we need to it's not addressing the core moral concern um, that people have. And so if we don't address that, it's going to continue to eat away at people. And so someone has to come along. Um, and I hope, you know, I'm, I'm sure more and more people, more and more Muslims will come along. We're like, OK, let's put political correctness to the side for a second and get real and address the issues before you know things get even more dangerous and, and more abysmal in our community. So, I mean, I'm optimistic. Like, that sounds pretty... Uh, yeah. I don't mean to be a downer, um, but I think that we have to be real about what's going on and, and stop kind of hiding behind political correctness. So I, I, I perfectly understand the negative reactions that I get in social media and how a lot of people 
really hate my guts. And it's to be expected. Like if you go, if you stray off of the script, right. And, and, and you critique things that have just been taken for granted and have been almost become sacred. Right. Right. Um, then you're going to get backlash. You're going to get people who don't understand and don't want to understand. And sometimes like, you know, there's even money involved, like where, you know, my, I've made my livelihood off of this kind of liberal conception of Islam. Right. And now you have someone who's trying to tear that down or trying to undermine it. So there's a lot of, there are a lot of politics and, and competing interests at play. But I mean, I just try, you know, be straight with everyone and keep doing what I'm doing in as honest and respectful a way as I can without uh, distorting the message or, or the critique that I'm trying to put out there. You know, the, the Muslim community in the West is, is similar to uh, a boxer in round 10 of a, of a fight where he's he's losing and the way it addresses any any punches that are being thrown its way is by ducking running running around the ring and it, or just covering up you know so yeah. uh, similarly i think it, what initiatives like like what yakin is doing and what you you yourself are doing and many other people like you are doing and we're trying to bring these people to light on our show is that uh, you know addressing problems head on and sometimes it won't be the way you want it to be uh, sometimes it's not going to fit into the narrative of uh, certain people's agendas and it won't be something that we're used to hearing because it's something new and different and i think w one of the appeals is that is that muslim youth around the country are, are kind of waking up to this new reality with with trump coming in, into power and seeing that hey we did everything that you guys told us to do but it didn't work so what's wrong now well, you know what do we have to do to um make sure that our kids are protected and mm. and and we come out successful in, in at least in, in the west you know yeah i think that when we look at the election i had that article why trump is surprisingly good for muslims that came out actually quite before the elections it was right after hillary became the democratic nominee but basically my argument there i still stand by that and what I was trying to argue is that there's two different kinds of harms that can affect Muslims in America with, from these two candidates. There's physical harm, obviously, but there's also spiritual, spiritual harm. And when we look at physical harm, an argument can be made that, you know, we can debate whether Trump or Hillary would have been the lesser of two evils. I think that too often Muslims after eight years of, of Obama are aligned with the Democratic Party. And so they have this kind of partisan reflex to think that, oh, the Democrats are inherently good and the GOP is inherently evil. Um, and I think that's not justified because if you look at a lot of the programs that Obama put in place or continue from the Bush era, they're very negative to the Muslim community. Um not only abroad, but also domestically. Right. And I just want to reiterate, you can continue yeah. just so the listeners know. I, I love the article, by the way. And you described Obama as the man with the iron fist with velvet gloves. 
<laughs> right? Exactly. That was phenomenal. Even my students, I had them read that article. But continue, just so people understand, the, you you referred to him as, and I agree with you 100%, iron fist with velvet gloves. But yeah, continue. Yeah, exactly. The point with the velvet glove is that power and control is most effective if it doesn't come off, doesn't come across as power and control, exactly. right? Something so, goes wrong, invite them to the White House for iftar and this and that and you know, make an apology or support the Muslims so they never have that, you know, uh, they can never make the connection. Yeah, exactly. And um, I pointed out also in that article that in 2015, with Obama's State of the Union, um, at one point in his State of the Union, he made us, he, he was saying like, Muslim, I mean, Americans need to put away discrimination and racism. We need to stop anti-Semitism. We need to stop um, discrimination against blacks and Latinos and other minorities. And he was going through a list. And after each group that he mentioned, there was, you know, this loud applause from everyone. But then he got to Muslims. And when he said that, there was this awkward silence where (laughs) no one, not Democrats, not Republicans, no one clapped for that. And it was really awkward. And it gave gave you a real sense of, oh, wow, like we're really the untouchables, like we're the deplorables uh, back in 2015. No one wanted to have anything to do with Muslims. And it was because of the ISIS hysteria, um, obviously, at at that time, which did a lot um, to create this two-party consensus about Muslims as being a threat to national security. And even like before the elections and and the debates that Hillary and, and Trump had, you had people noticing that, oh, well, whenever Trump and Hillary speak about Muslims, they're pretty much aligned. They both are only thinking about Muslims in terms of national security, right? Even Clinton, like whenever she speaks about the value of Muslim Americans, she's only talking about us in in terms of being an asset uh, to police ourselves and to stop terrorism. So like that's not a coincidence, right? That's something that... um, that's the democratic view of the Muslim community. Yeah. And it's been shown through Obama era policies. And even right before the day before the elections, the FBI on the national level was going to different Muslim homes and uh, just trying to interview different Muslims about um, some kind of case that they're working on when, and the details didn't really come to light from that. But you know, the question of having a Muslim registry and, and Trump wanting to create this registry. Well, why aren't we asking ourselves, well, what, how did the FBI know where the Muslim homes were? And, and exactly. who, like, people living at these addresses are Muslims. Doesn't that require, you know, some kind of database or Metadata. spreadsheet that has these names? Like, we have to stop being naive and stop playing into this kind of partisanship between Dems and GOP. And I think Muslims have an op- a great opportunity to transcend partisanship um, because when you look at Democrats and and those who are really um, aligned with one party or the other, there's an inherent hypocrisy to that because when your side does it, it's okay. But if the other side does it, you're going to whine and scream and shout about it. Totally. Um, And that's just, uh, you know, partisanship in America when you have a two party system, but Muslims don't have to plug themselves into that. And I don't think they should, because we should, we have an opportunity to be a, a unique moral voice uh, and to actually be relevant because we speak out 
on issues regardless of who's proposing them, who's proposing the policy, who's who's doing the corruption behind the scenes. We can we can be that voice, but we kind of sabotage ourselves. We we shy away from that. We prefer to play it safe and align ourselves with one party that seems like on the surface to be uh, you know on our side, but really it's just an iron fist and a velvet glove. So it's really counterproductive, in my opinion. And I think the prediction that you made was spot on, that the reaction is that you're going to have a lot of these individuals that are sensitive. The, you know, the, the Christians are going to be inviting the Muslims over, lots of support. Even Trevor Noah, I don't know if you guys saw that, the whole thing of, you know, we're all going to register as Muslims if, if this goes down. We're all going to register as Muslim. And from now on, he you know, I don't know if you watched that episode. He was like, everyone say, I am a Muslim, you know. And right. I would never imagine, even if it's in comedy, how much dawah is, is actually being done indirectly, not from Muslims and raising awareness about Islam and sentiment towards Islam. I mean, this is not something that just happens, uh, uh, you know, by accident. This is something that's very well understood by our Creator. And this is a way that, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if He wants, He can, you know, spread Islam through whoever He wants and raise awareness to whoever He wants. It actually reminds me of the story of... Uh the shahada, the conversion of uh, Hamza radiallahu anhu. Yeah, exactly. You know, when he did it, he said he was a Muslim out of just, like, Ghira for the tribe. Yeah. And that, like, manifested itself because of... Of course. And there's, there's a human element in, like, psychology and whatnot. If you speak something that it does sometimes manifest, it, it, it's a way of kind of... Mani- it can manifest in the heart somehow. It, the same thing, even with the prayer, right? I mean, we can come back onto the topic, but Rasulullah he he expects us to, to cry in our prayer, right? And he says that if you can't, then tatabako, act as if you're going to cry. Eventually, it's going to become real. It's the hadith of Rasulullah And that goes with all human psychology. You have to, there is a truth to the, to the, to the aspect of fake it till you make it, you know? The question is, is that uh, are we, if we are to make a parallel to the seerah, are we going to be entering into a, a boycott period? Where, where the Prophet and the Sahaba companions were, were boycotted. Uh, is there going to be uh, some kind of a period like that in the Muslim community in the West? I think, just personally, I think there is going to be something to that degree, but there's so much overwhelming support of our surrounding individuals that Rasulullah didn't have, didn't have at that time. You know, there's so yeah. many people that are supporting. Um, you know, the Christians, as soon as they said that, there's all these posts on Facebook. If the, the Jewish guy, I forgot his name, man. He's like, you know, I'm I'm Jewish, I'm, I'm anti-Semitic, but if this registry goes down, I'm Muslim, you know? Yeah. And there's there's a lot of people that support in the social media, even internationally. What do you think, Daniel? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that, inshallah, things won't get bad as what uh, the Prophet Simon and the Sahaba faced um, with the boycott. But as far as our situation i think that there's always going to be some trouble and some difficulty and, and i'm not um, naive about that so when i wrote that article about trump being surprisingly good for muslims it wasn't to say that oh trump electing means being elected means that there's going to be a utopia no. for muslims no there's there's going to be some difficulties but the idea is that the overall net benefit would would be more from what I could tell. And I think I still stand by that. And, and we're talking about those different aspects of it. But I think that what we have to really do as a community is um, come together uh, as Muslims and be more willing to defend each other and to um, be willing to take a bullet, you know, for each other, figuratively speaking, 
because unfortunately what we see what we have seen from the Muslim community is you know if if someone gets scrutinized if if a group gets scrutinized by the government or there's kind of pressure put on a group by government forces then the Muslim community again just for the sake of being politically correct or or saving our own behinds we kind of ditch that group or that person and that's it's a very destructive mentality and it leads to this divide and conquer weakness that we have is that we're easily divided but you know the, um, one it of the, doesn't take much one of the benefits i took from your article as far as trump uh um you know, surpri- being surprisingly good for the muslims i think that it will break those barriers and will be forced to um you know unite and not be so naive and weak towards each other and abandoning uh, a mindset that that's another uh, you know thing that sparked uh my mind is that um Trump, if anything, is going to be beneficial for our akhirah, not specifically for our dunya, which is why, if you really think about it, this his presidency and his coming into just the elections raised so much Islamic awareness to the non-Muslim community that the pub the 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 the, the publicity for Islam, no one has ever done that in the history of America. If you think about it in the West, the publicity this guy has done in the past year is unparalleled. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. No I one has that. done that much publicity at all for Islam. Everybody knows about Islam now. Yeah, we. Yeah, there's definitely that element, and I think that we can take advantage of that and um, use that opportunity. Um, but I think like the, one of the dangers, though, is again, if we revert back to partisanship, in the sense that we think that the GOP is some kind of unique evil. Um, and that pushes us to really embed ourselves into the Democratic Party more and more. I think that could be problematic. Of course, and yeah. I started talking about this because, unfortunately, the Democrats, um, while they're they are seemingly more tolerant of diversity in the, of the Muslim community, in other ways they're not tolerant, right? Not, because yeah. when it comes to certain uh, social issues, um, they're their positions are very contrary to Islam. Yeah. And if Muslims have this reflexive association with Democrats, then they're also going to take on some of those positions that are very anti-Islamic. So that's that's the danger. It's a spiritual danger. Yeah. And it's it, we've already seen the effects and the impact of that with eight years of Obama. And I mean, the example of that, and I got a lot of heat for pointing this out is um, after the Orlando shooting that happened earlier this year, there was a joint statement that Muslim community leaders and scholars came out with. And, you know, part of the statement was good in that it denounced violence. It it denounced this kind of uh, indiscriminate killing. So there was no problem there. But at one point in that, in that joint statement, there was a sentence or two that, said that, you know, we're committed, these these signatories are committed to people living life as they choose. Um, and that's that's a very kind of liberal statement to make, this idea that, you know, everyone is free to live as they choose. Um, that's something that Muslims just conceptually, theologically, we don't believe that on a moral level. We believe that there's Sharia, there's, there's God-given right and wrong. And I know that we're living in a non-Muslim country. That's fine. 
But that doesn't mean that changes our moral orientation and our belief about how people um, should live their lives in the ideal sense. And so we don't, you know, in the same way that we can make a statement about, um, you know, a terrorism and we can denounce that. We should also part of our moral compass is not just denouncing terrorism. We also believe in certain sexual norms as well. Um, and, and we don't accept that, you know, this kind of um, sexual practice or behavior is acceptable. Right. And, and you see that in our own countries in Muslim countries, there are laws um, based on Sharia that prohibit certain kinds of sexual behavior. And those are, laws are problematic from a liberal perspective. And so if we sign on to this kind of LGBT um, narrative, that has consequences for how uh, Muslim countries understand how Sharia is implemented in that part of the world. And so we're kind of undermining our own, you know, our own religion. We're undermining our own um, beliefs when we sign statements like that. And you know, I know a lot of people signed on to that. Um, and a lot of people. Well, it happened you know, after the Orlando. I highly respect. After the right, yeah, Orlando so social pressure to yeah. There's a social pressure, right? There was a lot of political pressure to sign on to that statement. I think that if that one line had not been there, it had been perfectly fine. But there are a lot of implications um, for saying something like that, uh, you know, politically speaking, because then, okay, well, then you're signed on to this LGBT agenda in some sense, because you're saying, well, people should have the right um, to live as they want. So if you have an Islamic school and you have a, a gay Muslim, a self-identifying gay Muslim saying, okay, I want to teach at your school. And by the way, I'm openly gay or I'm openly lesbian. Well, what can a Muslim, uh, an Islamic school say to that if they've already signed on to the idea that, oh, well, you have the right to live as, as you want. How can the school justify the, you know, the quote unquote discrimination by not hiring a person that is openly flouting uh, and rejecting something that is very central to the to the dean. Well, well, how, how do we how do we solve that kind of problem? Let's just use that example for a second. Uh, how, how how does a school approach that problem without getting in trouble with the law? Because then you could get sued for you know discriminatory practices and whatnot. I mean, these are like real problems that can happen to. Um, oh, numerous right. Muslim private schools. Well, and, uh, it, it, I don't know if it's that big of an issue. Like, let's say I want to go to a, an openly Christian school, and like I'm openly Muslim, and I want to teach like theology, and you're discriminating against me. Well, I I don't you, know if that you think they, they they could discriminate against me? Not not because well, if you're teaching theology of Islamic tradition, then you're kind of going against what they believe in. No, right? I'm gonna say I'm gonna teach I'm gonna teach Christian theology. It's just gonna be hella biased. <laughs> well, I think there's specific laws about okay. you know discrimination based on homosexuality ra rather than um, Islamic theology. So, well, what I'm trying to say is is that we 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 need to figure out as a community that there are going to be people who are involved in things that we are completely against, like homosexuality. But well, how would we feel about if someone was homosexual but didn't publicize it at all, and they were they practiced that inside their the privacy of their home? I mean, what is that? Is that something that we would be accepting towards? That okay, as long as this person is just doing it in, the, in their bedroom, like we, no one knows about it, 
would we be okay with that? Or let's say he's he's he was hired already, oh. right? And then you find out after the fact that he's keeping it under tabs. Like, you I mean, know, I think isn't that the principle in Islam that what's happens behind closed doors is that's your business? Just don't come out with it publicly. It's between you and Allah. Yeah, isn't that what? what do you well, think? yeah. In that scenario, if you just say that this is something private that's happening behind closed doors, that's not the same scenario, right? Because yeah. the scenario that I mentioned. The person is openly right. um, taking on this lifestyle and this identity, um, and and it's on that basis that they want to get hired by the Islamic school. Um, so in that case, um, yeah, there's the liability because the laws are changing, right? Ever right. since last year, um, and continuously with uh, gay marriage becoming legalized, um, these different religious institutions are now being forced to except people who have identities and views that are diametrically opposed to their faith. So the Christian community, um, at least parts of it, have been very involved legally and in terms of just the writing that they've done to address this issue from a legal perspective, a philosophical perspective, um, because they realize the implications, like they realize that their churches and their schools can be undone uh, in so many words because you're now promoting and accepting something that is contrary to your faith. But Muslims had nothing to say. Like when the Supreme Court decision came through in uh, 2015 on gay marriage, I didn't see any commentary really um, from the Muslim community Um and that's a shame because it directly impacts us or has the potential to impact us uh, in, in very significant ways. Um, but it took like this Orlando shooting for people to wake up and, and realize, well, we better say something. But uh, we reverted back to kind of the, the uh, standard talking points of the LGBT movement that, look, this is a lifestyle People need to accept this lifestyle. People need to accept X, Y, Z. And it's really ridiculous because there's no other sexual practice that's elevated to this level of being an identity, right? Yeah. Um, there are, and, and that's the case in Islam too. Like we don't have an Islamic term for gay, like being a gay person. Like you can have desires for a lot of different things, right? And some of those things may be permissible and other things are impermissible. But just having a desire for, you know, uh, having sex with the same, someone from the same gender, that doesn't elevate into, oh, that defines who you are such that you're a gay Muslim or you're a lesbian Muslim. And since we're on the subject, Um, we we just have to prove that, give that clarification that we're talking about our moral acceptance. We're not saying that, you know, America should have laws or whatever. We don't recognize their right to exist. Uh, I think we as Muslims can understand that, you know, we live in a non-Muslim country and there's going to be people who practice homosexuality. And I I don't think we're talking on that level. But we have to have a perspective, right? A moral perspective that we advocate. So everyone has a perspective that they're advocating in American democracy, right? Yeah, so you have position, pro, just a position. pro-gun lobby, right? Yeah. Yeah, so they have beliefs about the morality of owning guns. 
And it's on that basis that they go lobby Washington um, and, and put out all kinds of material on, on that subject. There are people, you know, who believe in um, being uh, pro-abortion, pro-choice, right? And so where are those, where are those positions or the, those beliefs coming from? They might not call it religion, but it's something that they believe moral, morally to be the case. And then they advocate that on a public level and they try to push for policy that respects those beliefs. So why can't Muslims do the same, right? We have a perspective on sexuality, as does everyone. So why should we, you know, put those beliefs uh, to the side in order for us to be able to participate politically in this country? It just doesn't make sense. And so even though there are laws, like before the Supreme Court decision, there were different states who had uh, referendums on the question of gay marriage, and you could go vote on that. And so are we saying that Muslims, like given that choice, Muslims shouldn't have voted against gay marriage if they went to the polls? Like, does that make any sense? Like, if you're a Muslim and, and you know Islamically that this is something that is impermissible and it's something extremely destructive, as Allah tells us in the Quran, are we going to be okay, like, to go to the polls and say, oh, yeah, sure, this is, this is allowed, this is, we uh, accept this? No, of course not. Like, given that choice, we would politically act according to our religious faith. Otherwise, what's the point of being Muslim um, and, and living in it? a so-called secular democracy if our faith plays no role in how we act politically it, it just makes no sense right the challenge and, and again, is i think that your your disclaimer was really good like what i'm saying here i'm just talking about the moral issues right. obviously there are um people who have grown because up of, here what they, they do daniel is that they just that, kind of jump yeah. in they take a soundbite of what you just said and and uh they try to say like oh he wants to ban the right of uh, American citizens to practice uh, sexual activity in whatever they way they prefer. And that's not what you're saying at all. It's what our moral compass is as Muslims, as what we believe in. We're going to say that this is what we believe in. You can choose to accept this idea or not, you know? Uh, I like the yeah, analogy, it's a, it's though. Public- I like the analogy, sure. though, sorry, with the, um, with for example, the, the pro-gun lobby, right? Now, the only, the challenge I see for us is that our community, because we're a smaller community, and like like Simon mentioned, we're kind of like on the, a boxer on the 10th round on the ropes, so and we're kind of being squeezed, that our community leaders feel like, okay, there's allies within the LGBTQ community, so I've got to be politically correct. I can't, you know, and there's never clarification, like, you know, a, a, you know, there's never that clarification, or I would say people were just too afraid to like espouse the views that you just kind of articulated earlier, right? From our community leaders. And so when someone like you speaks up, you're like seen as this rogue extremist dude, right? That's the perception at least, right? I mean, and you you probably definitely understand that, but, but that's the challenge. So we're facing an uphill climb is that we can't even get unified, um, behind our, you know, community leaders who like, for example, in Chicago after this shooting, they were going to like iftar sponsored by gay Muslims. Right. Yeah. I, mm. I think that it it's, I'm sympathetic to Muslim leaders who are in a position where they have to come out and comment on current events. Um, I'm sympathetic to that because they're put in a really tough spot and they have to 
they have so many different interests that they have to appease um, and and can have big ramifications. So I'm very sympathetic to that. Alhamdulillah, I don't have that kind of burden or that responsibility. Like I'm just some random blogger. So I can say, you know, I can say these, these things. I'm, I'm hoping that that will inspire others to say it in a better way, uh, a more diplomatic way and, and and a more compelling way. And then, you know, hopefully that will have an impact on the way we think about these issues as a community. Yeah, and, and even and uh, if we can even work on, I know, like for example, people have great difficult, great amount of difficulty dealing with you know coworkers at 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 their jobs, and you know being able to whether uh, they get invited to parties afterwards and not, and just working on some of these these more granular things in your private life, uh, I think it, it can permeate across our community also i think if we can build this attitude of having principles and things that you know this is my my red line that i can't cross and and you need to respect that about me while i respect whatever you believe in um but but you well i i don't exactly agree with that i think that we have principles we have islam right, right. this is a gift that allah has made us muslims and we should share that with the world and, and not focus on, you know, oh, respect my beliefs. Rather, we should say, look, this is what we believe in and we think that this is the truth. Yeah. We know it's the truth. We're convict- we have conviction in that. And we want to share it with others out of love and concern for others, for non-Muslims uh, especially, right? right. Um, so I think that that's a more proactive understanding of these things. So like on the issue of gay marriage, like, the mindset here, it's, it's posed like someone like me yeah. is portrayed as a bigot and someone who hates, you know, I have this irrational fear of, uh, gays and lesbians and transsexuals, transgendered. And I'm just trying to take away their rights. Like that's how it's portrayed. But the understanding that I have is like, look, this is something that Allah has pointed out is very destructive. And it's something that will consume a person and take them further and further from Allah and, and jeopardize their akhirah. And so if we truly have conviction in that and we truly believe that, then we, we need to be concerned about others. We need to be concerned. Like We don't want others to fall into that. Yeah. We don't want others to be subject to that kind of, um, that, that kind of path. So if we are sincere in that, then we should... You know, that will affect how we interact with our coworkers, with our neighbors, with uh, society at large. It has to be something based out of compassion. Compassion doesn't mean that you just accept people, wh- whatever they propose for themselves. No, you give feedback. You, you give, you know, you, you bring, we, we have to take our principles, we have to take Islam and take it seriously and present it to others out of that compassion, out of that love and mercy for others. I think that if we have that sincerity, then people's hearts will be open, even when we're advocating for things that are seemingly bigoted or seemingly um, intolerant. Bam. Right. You know, Daniel, before we uh, wrap up, I, I want to go backtrack a little bit. We, we're talking about the whole alignment with, with the Democratic Party recently in the last you know, decade or so. What are your thoughts on – because right now after the – with uh, – President-elect Trump's uh, cabinet appointees coming in. Now there's this big push as a, you know, as a way, okay, well, what we can do, we can salvage this a little bit because uh, Representative Keith S. Ellison, who's Muslim, 
is uh, going to be running for the Democratic National Committee chair. And now that's like the new thing for the Muslim community to get behind. You know, first it was like, Bern, let's, go, let's go Bernie, let's go Bernie. Bernie got knocked out. I'm with her. Hashtag. And now it's yeah. like, let's get Keith Ellison. What are your thoughts on, you know, the support there? And also, or do you just see another, you know, an, another issue of just us being just like being played by the system? I think that there needs to be uh, two viable options in our community. Like we, we definitely need Muslims who are in, are involved with politics. Um, and then we also need Muslims who are opposing the establishment and, and are raising critique and are, are oppositional in orientation politically. And I think having both sides is, is healthy. Um, and especially even those who are involved with politics need to be as real as they can to say, look, there are these problems. There are these bad policies that my side, you know, the democratic side is putting forth and be upfront and honest about that. Just, 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 just like you, you need a conservatives balance. with liberals, just, just to make an analogy for people to understand, like just as you would need liberals to counteract conservatism, just to kind of find a balance in the middle. Is that what you're saying with, with, with finding uh, people who are kind of opposed to working within the system? And then, then there are people who are, you know, doing the opposite and that are working within the system. There, there needs to be both voices so that we can kind of find some kind of middle ground. Is that, is that what you're, what, what you were trying to say? Yeah, that's why I think we've, we're, we've been, unbalanced in the approach because right now there's just been people, Muslims who are involved with the, with the left wing. And again, it's very partisan. So they're not willing to critique Obama. Uh, over eight years, they've kind of uh, explained away some of his terrible policies and some of the genocidal things that he's done against Muslims in Libya and Somalia and Afghanistan and elsewhere. Those have kind of been brushed under the rug because, oh, well, I'm a Muslim and I'm a Democrat. I'm progressive. I'm not going to critique my own side for, you know, whatever reason. Um, but we need to have more balance. Uh, we need to be we need to transcend partisanship and we need to transcend these two parties. Um, and so if people want to be involved in that way. Um, by, you know, being in these different institutes or social policy groups, whether it's for Trump or Ellison or whoever else. Sure, you need to have Muslims in, involved in those roles. I'm not opposed to that. But it has to be a little bit more even-handed in, in our self-critique of the things that happen right under our nose. I think with Trump being in office, that'll be a lot easier because now every the Muslim community is hyper-focused. Every appointment that Trump makes is being analyzed and scrutinized by the Muslim community. That's great because now we have this skepticism about, about the federal government that, that we didn't have with Obama because, again, the velvet glove, we're thinking that, oh, well, he's not going to – he's not proposing anything that's inherently evil or bad like Bush did. Um, so we've kind of woken up from that, but again, I'm also afraid that we're going to go too far on the other side and, and just embed ourselves into the democratic party. Daniel, one, you touched upon a point that, um, a, that a lot of Muslims upset me with their rhetoric after the election, 
So a lot of the rhetoric we see from Muslims is like, if you voted for Trump, that tells me you don't care about my family. You don't care about me or my ch- children, etc. You value XYZ policy, even if you say you didn't vote because you're a bigot. You didn't vote for Trump because you're a bigot. And, and I found that very hypocritical. You know why? Because under the Obama administration, and some people could argue, well, this is just a natural cause of the U.S. government. Man, he, he droned the crap out of some countries, some Muslim countries, right? And nobody batted an eye. And it was almost like, you know, well, and those people in, in Pakistan could have argued, like, you guys have voted for Obama and were, like, bought into his rhetoric hook, line, and sinker. Like, I hope you're happy because my villages got bombed, you know, and I hope, it, you know, and you obviously don't care about me. Like, that that's kind of what I, that entered my mind. The, the narrative over here, though, they always say is that they they were both going to do that, but in terms of who would have been the lesser of two evils. They well, said- for foreign policy, a lot of ar- a good argument could be made for Trump doing less of that cons- based upon, like, Hillary's, um, you know, notoriety as being a hawk. I mean, the, the, that, that can go both ways. We, we can't... I mean, uh, what Trump is going to do in the future is, is a big unknown, and we can't base conclusions on that, you know? So... All I'm saying is that well, what the liberals end up saying or the people who either way, there would have been a lot of damage that happened to Muslims overseas. But in terms of domestically, we would have had uh, we had a better time. Yeah, you're right. You really can't predict a lot of the stuff. But, you know, I, I think like I, I definitely think during the whole campaign, the rhetoric was that Trump would be more harmful for Muslim Muslims living in the United States. And. Hillary. So there's a difference between there's a difference between making a lesser of two evils argument, but what was I think problematic is so yeah you have the lesser of two evils argument and then there's hashtag I'm with her right because when you do hashtag <laughs> I'm with her and this kind of uh, enthusiastic endorsement of Hillary uh, the same kind of stuff we saw with Obama in both of his elections. Um, that's where the imbalance comes from because it's like you're taking on this political identity um, with the Democratic Party with this kind of enthusiastic support. That's where you get blinded to um, or you even actively are um, brushing aside the very problematic things that Hillary or Obama have done. And it's not just, I mean, we're focused on droning or the foreign invasion and destruction that's affecting Muslim communities, but even domestically, um, things that might not affect Muslims in particular, but um, when we look at the financial collapse that happened in 2007-2008, that impacted millions of people. It plunged millions of people into poverty or, or closer to the poverty line. And so there's a huge impact and increase in human suffering because of policies um, that were started through even as far back as Clinton and then reinforced through Bush. And then what does Obama do when he um, wins the election in 2008? He brings in all of these Wall Street executives and lobbyists onto his cabinet. Um, you have Tim Geithner, who was, one, who was one of his first appointments. You have Rahm Emanuel, the Zionist uh, corporate shill who's coming into the White House, and, and Muslims weren't concerned with that, that, but as far as pure human suffering, as, as far as the implications and really the evil uh, of those appointments, 
that went unnoticed and uncommented upon by the Muslim community. And that's a problem because if we're going to be a moral voice, if we're going to be doing real dawah and, and showing people that Islam is the truth, we need to call out wrong and we need to call out evil when we see it. And if we can't change it with our hands, we change it with our voice. And at least we should hate it in our heart at the very least. So, awesome point, yeah. you know, those are the kinds of things I think about when I, you know, think about Obama. And, and when he was, I was not on Obama's train, you know, back in 2008, because uh, the, one of the things that he did right after he gained the Democratic nomination, as soon as he became the official candidate, um, he, as a senator, voted for telecom immunity, uh, retroactive telecom immunity, which meant that all of the warrant, uh, warrantless wiretapping that Bush did and the telecom companies like AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, etc., um, enabled um, and basically handed it, all of these phone records to the federal government without warrant. Um, so they voted to prevent anyone from suing, basically giving um, this protection to those companies and, and making them immune from any kind of legal liability. And he supported that. And when he did, that showed me that, look, this guy is the same, same thing. He's just continuing the same kind of corrupt um, orientation of politics for another four years and when he goes into office. And all of that talk about being the hope and change, that was just a facade. And so I could see it right then. And I commented on it back. Um, this was I, had, I was a recent college grad um, at the time. But it was uh, very clear that this was not some kind of different party. It's the same people. It's the same ideas, the same ideology. There's just like a couple of issues where they disagree. But overall, it's just one party, the corporate party. And, and then you have two wings of it, called one called the GOP, one called the Dem. Wow. MashaAllah, that was deep. It was. Daniel, we could talk to you all day. I mean uh... – <laughs> You know, send me a good call. You just scratch the surface. I mean, there's a ton of topics we want to cover with you in the future. Um, we'd love to have you uh, back on um, sooner rather than later, for sure. You know, I'm sure there'll be a lot of developments happening in the community as things are very, uh, I guess, robust right now. So to volatile, speak. volatile. <laughs> I was like trying to. <laughs> so uh, again, how can people uh, reach out to you or find out more about you? Yeah, so um, you can check out my Facebook page. Um, that's where I have my regular posting. Um, there's also yaqeeninstitute.org. Um, they'll have you know a lot of material that I'll be researching and writing, and also video content coming, you know, in the near future, inshallah. Um, and then also on Twitter, you can follow me um, on that avenue. Excellent. Well, uh, Jazakallah for coming on. Uh, may Allah bless you in your efforts and may Allah, may Allah bless the Yaqeen Institute and Ameen. allow you to keep speaking the truth in light of the opposition you may face. Ameen. Ameen. Um, so for our Ameen. listeners out there, uh, if you want to reach out to us via questions or comments, you can email us at themadmamluks at gmail.com. We do read every email and we try to reply to every email when if it's appropriate. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook, uh, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, and give us a five-star rating. Uh, we're also available on Stitcher for the y'all, y'all Android folks that need to get up with the times to get an iPhone. <laughs> well, shameless plug there for Apple. Hopefully hopefully you won't get too much hate mail. No doubt, no doubt. For uh, for our esteemed guest, uh, Daniel Hakikaju, 
and my co-host, uh, Sheikh Amir Saeed Sim. This is Mahin signing off for the Mad Mamluks. Assalamu alaikum.